Macworld Podcast number 353 for Wednesday, May 1st, 2013. Welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. I'm Senior Editor Dan Morin, and we're here today to talk about a momentous anniversary in Apple history, uh, the 10th anniversary of the iTunes Store. So we've assembled a rogues gallery of uh, Macworld staff and contributors. I'm joined by Senior Editor Chris Breen. Hello, Dan. Hi, Chris. Uh, Executive Editor John Seth. Hello. Hi, John. And Senior Contributor Kirk McElhern. Hi there. Thanks for joining us, guys. So we uh, we just celebrated this quite large anniversary, uh, 10 years of the iTunes Store. I will say this is particularly momentous for me because the iTunes Store debuted on my birthday in 2003. So we share an anniversary. It's very easy for me to remember that one. Uh, and we put together a pretty extensive package on Macworld.com uh, chronicling the years and the developments in the iTunes Store over this last decade. So I want to first turn to Chris Breen, who who did a double header uh, and kicked off a couple pieces for us, talking about uh, the iTunes Store the last decade and why it succeeded. So, Chris, if you had to pick one thing that you think really catapulted the iTunes Store into its success of the last decade, what would that one thing be? That one thing would be the um, bungling of the music industry. <laughs> Always good when someone else falls down and provides you with an opportunity, right? They left the door wide open. At that time, the music industry was suffering badly. Um, They were selling CDs, but people were able to rip those CDs, put them out on peer-to-peer. There was the rise of broadband, so this became possible for people to transfer music to these peer-to-peer sharing services. So it wasn't, you know, like making mixtapes anymore where you're passing them out to a few of your friends, but now you had the opportunity to share files with millions of people. And that's what happened. And the music industry suffered because of it. Their reaction was kind of typical of most businesses, which is how can we protect ourselves? I know, let's lock down this stuff and let's throw people in jail and that will do it. Uh, and it didn't. It It showed that Music uh, sharing wasn't necessarily wrong, but it was dangerous. So those people who were bound and determined to do this were going to continue doing it. Normal people would sort of get stuff anyway, particularly sharing through colleges, and it didn't really help. So, um, you know, thanks to the music industry for basically doing it wrong and then having no idea what Apple could do to change the way music was distributed. And and in regards to that, I mean, I think, you know, there were other, we were in a transitional period at that point, right? People, a lot of people are still buying CDs. Uh, MP3 players did exist prior to, and including including the iPod at that point, but prior to the iPod, they had been very small, right? And and so you didn't have really a huge market for them. Um, the, the relationship between the iPod in particular and the iTunes store, seems like it lent a lot of weight to Apple in order to be able to move into this market. Well, I think so. And it, and so much of it is Apple controlling the experience. And we, we've known that for years that Apple controls hardware and they control software. And they took the same approach here, which is essentially they founded the store. They made the deals necessary to get content into the store. They already had the most popular music player in the world. And that music player, as you said, there were MP3 players before, but they were terrible. They didn't hold much. The transfer rate was awful. They were hard to navigate. 
and Apple controlled iTunes, which they had basically taken developers from uh, Cassidy and Green, brought them over, and then they founded the um, iTunes application. So their ability to control the experience from soup to nuts really helped a lot because there it wasn't like other people hadn't tried this before. Virgin had tried it and the labels had tried it and Microsoft tried it. And you don't really hear about any of those services anymore because they didn't control the entire widget. If it was Microsoft, yes, they tried to establish a store, but somebody else had to make the players for them until they finally came out with a Zune. Everything was very heavily copy protected. Sony did a terrible job where they really copy protected stuff. And the players they had were bad and uh, and trying to use your media anywhere else was impossible. So I think really when Steve Jobs announced the iTunes store, he put it very succinctly, and I think he was correct, that piracy isn't an issue of technology, but it's a, it's a moral issue. So he said, look, let's solve the problem by making this easy, make music accessible and not terribly expensive. So people started buying singles instead of albums for 99 cents or an album for 10 bucks. Now, John, I know you're you're quite the music aficionado, I believe. You have one of those. Uh, like our other two panelists, I think you have a pretty large iTunes library. What what was the kind of, what was the step that Apple took that convinced you to start buying digital music and were you did you sort of jump in right when the iTunes store opened or did it take a little while to win you over? Well, <clears throat> I started uh, pretty pretty early on and um you know, we had CDs before and then we had the iPod, and then the iTunes Music Store. So you've got, you're already using digital music. You've then got a player that can play that and then can play purchases from a store. And those together really made the experience come together for me pretty quickly. And, you know, Chris was talking about how Apple controlling the whole experience really helped. And, you know, as we all remember, when the iTunes Music Store launched, Tracks had DRM on them, digital rights management, which other people were using too. But the fact that Apple controlled the whole ecosystem meant that you would buy your stuff from the store, you would listen to it in iTunes, or you would put it on an iPod. And for the most part, it didn't really matter that there was DRM because you didn't run against, run up against those problems very often. It was a concession that Apple had to make to the labels in order to get 200,000 tracks from the five major labels when uh, the iTunes Music Store launched. But it really wasn't that big of a deal because you could put them on as many iPods as you wanted to. There was the you know limit of the number of computers and the number of times you could burn a playlist, but there were ways around that. So that, that concession wasn't really that big of a deal. And from someone who's used to having CDs, you know, I could then rip my own CDs and put them on the iPod. And I was doing that before with my Rio uh, you know, music player that held one hour of music at 128 MP3. And as Chris mentioned, the slow transfer seeds, it would take half an hour to an hour to transfer one CD's worth of music using, using USB 1.1. So because of the Firewire iPod, familiarity with CDs, and the way the music store just worked and let you find what you're looking for, press a few buttons, download it, and have it on your computer or on your device. It was really quick for me and a lot of people to get involved and just just jump right in. Well, and how about you, Kirk? What was your earliest experience? If you can if you can cast your mind back that over the last ten years. Well, it, it's a bit of a blur because digital music has become so commonplace. Um, 
I'm probably the odd man out here because I still buy a lot of CDs, in part because I listen to a lot of classical music. And the classical music industry, it's not that they haven't embraced digital music, um, but they still sell a lot of box sets really cheap. You can buy a set of 20 or 30 CDs often for 40 or $50, nowhere near the cost of downloads on a per-album basis. And they haven't really released these big sets digitally yet. Um, but for me, I think it was the second iPod. Um, I don't live in the States, and I don't think they sold the first iPod overseas. I was living in France at the time. So it would have been the second one that I got, and I immediately started ripping my CDs. And when the iTunes store opened, I started buying things that were hard to find. Um, even with the, the, the small number of albums and tracks they had when it launched, uh, it was a lot easier than finding certain types of music that were hard for me to get. Uh, since then, obviously, what is it, 30 million tracks they have now. Um, and the iTunes store for me is like kid in a candy shop. Um, anything I look for within limits, um, almost anything I look for, I can find on the iTunes store. And it just makes life so easy when you want to hear something or find a particular piece of music or in classic, a, 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 a particular performer playing a particular piece of music. It's so easy to find it. It ends up costing a lot of money, too. <laughs> yeah, we all probably have pretty extensive statements. You get those emails every every few days. Oh, here's all the things you just bought on the iTunes store. Well, and of course, you know, building on that, the um, Apple's put up this really kind of nifty timeline. We'll put a, a, a link in the show notes to uh, a decade of iTunes on the iTunes store, and it's sort of a clickable interactive chart where it goes through all the milestones in the past 10 years. Uh, and it really, it was pretty much the iTunes store was, was devoted to music until I think about 2005, um, and which is about halfway 2005, we got podcasts, um, which are still going today. Um, and you're listening to one right now. So in 2005, we, we added video for the first time in the form of TV shows. And, and that was a bit of a surprise to me when it came out. Uh, I, I don't know, Chris, looking back, does, uh, does that seem like a logical jump? Or, or at the time, was that very unexpected? I, I do think it was a little unexpected. Um, at first, when they announced it, I sort of went, huh, well, I have TiVo, so why do I want this? And then when I realized that I hadn't started watching Lost until the third season, then it completely made sense to me. Um, I think for a, maybe a lot of us, we used that strictly to catch up on shows that had gotten buzz or people had said, this is really good, and we'd already missed it. Uh, the first maybe half of a season or the first couple of seasons, and it gives you the opportunity to catch up. And now I tend to use it more. I subscribe to shows that I know I'm not going to have time to see, or if I'm really lazy, if there's a particularly great show out there that does so well without commercials, I will subscribe to it and buy it in standard definition for two bucks, uh, simply because the uninterrupted, uninterrupted version is so much cleaner and, and uh, cohesive. But uh, generally, in terms, in terms of video TV shows, yeah, I, I do think it took people a bit to catch on. But uh, once they did, I think it worked really well. Do you guys find that, I mean, in terms of consuming media, the iTunes store obviously now so much variety of media because it's not just music, but we have movies and TV shows and ebooks and apps, etc. Uh, does it seem in some ways like the music part of it has not exactly passe, but like, you know, we've been living with that, as, as you guys were saying, for so long is that less important now to the iTunes store? Well, there's so many 
other ways to get music now with Amazon having, you know, a similar catalog and now with subscription music services where you can pay a monthly fee and get access to millions and millions of tracks to listen to anytime you want. And in, in a way, it's sort of changed the way I think about the music portion of, of iTunes store because I still buy music, but it's mostly, um, you know, live music or, or, uh, benefit albums or things like that where I, I want the money to go somewhere special. But for the rest of it, I use Spotify now for 10 bucks a month and I'll listen to an album that I never would have purchased from the iTunes store or I might have purchased and listened to once and I'll use a subscription service to actually listen to it that way. So the way I, I, I look at iTunes on Monday nights um, when they post the new albums that come out on Tuesday, I usually look there to see what's new. And then from there, I decide what should I go to Spotify to look for or is there anything I really want to buy? But there's fewer things I want to buy now because there's other ways to listen to music. And and to sort of build off that, I mean, Chris, one of the other piece that you wrote was about iTunes going forward and in terms of what, what might the next 10 years bring. Um, in terms of dealing with these, this new realm of subscription services and, and the like that John's talking about, is that an arena that you think iTunes needs to develop into? I think that it needs to be offered as some kind of option. I, I think John's experience is pretty good, is that once you've experienced some kind of subscription, and, and even if it's not paid, if it, let's say you're using Pandora, People are getting really used to the idea of being able to switch on a device and have music streamed to them that they like. And that can be Pandora with commercials, uh, focusing on a particular channel you like or several channels you like, uh, to the point where I think music, and I think this is built over several years, that, that the general perception is that music has less and less value, that the idea of paying a dollar or a buck 29 for a song or $13 for an album is almost quaint now. And I think that trend will continue where people feel like, no, I just, I just want to turn on the tap and be able to get music. And the advantage where I think Apple has here is um, in that they already have our credit cards. And so just much like iTunes match, and I'm sure Kirk will have much to say about that soon. Um, people look at that as just an add on service instead of trying to get on it. Like if you sign up for Spotify or RDO or Mog or, or Rhapsody, you're faced with that wall, which is give us your credit card information and pay now. And I think for a lot of people, that's a real barrier. Where they're like, no, I don't really want to take on another service. But through the iTunes store, if they say, hey, you're going to have access to our catalog, our complete catalog, and uh, you give us 10 bucks a month and you can just stream it to yourself and you can download it to your portable devices. Do you want to do this? Option? Yeah, sure. I'll try it for a month and see what I'll see if I like it or not. Um, that's going to require Apple to come up with those deals. But I do think that 10 years from now, the idea of subscribing to music is not going to be as abhorrent as it is for some people today. And along those lines, John, what do you think in terms of video do we do can we expect to see something similar we have all these video services netflix hulu all of them competing with the itunes store do you want to stream your movies and have a monthly fee do you want to pay for them a la carte is streaming of video movies and television something that apple the itunes store needs to move towards 
Well, you know, when Chris was talking about how he would use the iTunes store to catch up on old TV seasons, I was sort of laughing to myself thinking, well, that's what Netflix is for. If it's an old season and it's on DVD, then it's going to be on Netflix. And for the most part, you can stream it. And you're already, if you're paying for that, you can do that for eight bucks a month and you can already stream it. So why buy these things unless you want to watch them over and over again and be able to take them on an airplane on your iPad where you don't have a data connection, things like that. And you, you kind of think that, you know, I mean, Apple's doing well with selling stuff on the iTunes store. You know, they had some number in the previous quarter, and it was $4 billion or something um, for iTunes services and and, uh, and the like. So the iTunes store is, is selling a lot and making money. But at some point, you know, you got to figure that people are used to also being able to dial into TV shows and movies when they want them and not have to pay. You know, the idea of like renting a movie where you used to go to, you know, these these things, there used to be these things called, you know, video stores that you would go to. And I'm not even that old. And I remember going and checking it, you know, getting VHS tapes when you'd see if they had the, the one you wanted on a Friday night and you check it out and this and that. And then it became DVDs and Blu-rays. But still that, that's a quaint notion there going to a store and, and, and renting something physical and even renting something digital in the ether is still sort of quaint to me because you think of, you know, I, I want on-demand access to something. I'm willing to pay a fee, and I want to be able to get what I want when I want it. And Netflix does that, and I think that Apple is at some point going to have to going to have to look at that. It's not their model, and they do really well. They sell a lot of stuff, but as an alternative or as another option, I kind of see that video is going to go the same way. Well, we've talked a little bit about you know, what might happen in the future. Kirk, I'm going to turn this one to you because I think you'll have a, some, some input on it. But what, what is wrong with the iTunes store right now? That's a big question. Well, How big long question. is this podcast? Pick your, yeah. <laughs> Pick your what is, what, if, you had to, if you had to lay claim to your, your biggest grievance, what would it be? Well, my biggest grievance, first of all, is not that the iTunes store is part of the iTunes application, which I know other people have that grievance. They think it should be split apart. I think it all makes sense that it's together. Um, and as everyone was pointing out earlier, the sort of end-to-end experience that Apple developed with the iTunes store syncing to an iPod, one click you buy an album, it syncs to your iOS device or a video or whatever, um, is really a perfect model. Um, what's wrong with it is that I'm just going to talk about iTunes Match because I wrote an article um, this week about it. It simply that just doesn't work right. Um, we expect better from Apple, even if iTunes Match is only 25 bucks a year. We expect it to work a lot better, to not have problems of files that are truncated or uh, explicit tracks that get replaced by clean tracks or... Songs that get replaced by instrumental versions, files that don't match, that take a long time to upload. We expect things to work a lot more smoothly. Now, that, to me, was sort of a marquee feature for the future of the iTunes Store. The fact that you wouldn't even necessarily have to download the music when you buy it anymore, because it would be in this big cloud somewhere. But Apple's kind of bungled that, the same way they bungled MobileMe and iTools and all the other cloud things they've done before that. Um, the iTunes store certainly has to change in order to keep up with the Netflixes and with Amazon um, that offers, what, 250,000 tracks 
for a matching thing, whereas iTunes only twenty five thousand. Um, it's not Apple's model, as John said, the subscription model, but they're going to have to keep reading Chris's articles about subscription services and finally realize that a lot of people do want that or that a lot of people will want it when they try it out and realize that it would be useful. We'll be back to our discussion of the iTunes Store after a brief word from our sponsor, Squarespace. Squarespace offers web design and hosting that anyone can use. You choose from one of their beautiful templates and plug in your own content. You can drag photos from your Mac right onto your Squarespace website, and they're uploaded automatically. And Squarespace sites are built to look great on any computer, with customized designs for iPhones, iPads, and other mobile devices. Macworld listeners can get a free trial of Squarespace with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash macworld. Try it out and see how lovely the interface is for building your own website. If you do decide to subscribe to Squarespace after your trial, you can save 10% by entering in the offer code MACWORLD5 just below the pricing options. Again, it's squarespace.com slash macworld for your free trial. And again, the offer code is MACWORLD5. That's MACWORLD followed by the number 5 to save 10% once you decide to sign up. And now back to the iTunes Store's 10th anniversary. Chris, you write a lot about a variety of other music services, as Kirk was saying, subscription services. And also you've written, I know, a lot about the Amazon Store. And like, what are, is there something that is being offered, aside from sort of subscription, which we've talked about, but is there a feature that you can point to on Amazon or one of the other stores and say, this is something Apple should really be doing too? Well, as Kirk pointed out, the... um Amazon just allowing you to have 25,000 tracks, I mean, 250,000 tracks is like, yep, you're right. Uh, Kirk has mentioned it time and again, and uh, and I've mentioned it a few times, I think John's mentioned it, that those of us who have large music libraries hit that 25,000 track limit routinely. And you get to the point where you go, okay, well, how am I going to get this in here? And then you have to play all these tricks with the iTunes library to try to make these tracks appear to be something else so that iTunes Match will accept your library. And then when you want to re-upload things and you've rejiggered your library again, it's still in it. It's such a pain. You know, it really should just be this broad thing, a quarter of a million tracks. Storage costs Apple next to nothing these days. If Amazon can do this, Apple can do it as well. Um, so accommodate those of us with large libraries or pay, make us pay a little bit more for, for more tracks and charge us an extra five bucks or 10 bucks a year for it. Uh, and the fact that, um, I don't know, there's, Amazon is such a one-stop shop anyway that um, I like that experience of being there and saying, oh, I, thought, I want to check out this album because they've got recommendations while I'm there. Um, they also offer a lot of free stuff or really cheap stuff that Apple doesn't highlight at all. So if you go to the iTunes store, you may see a few, see a few free tracks here and there. But if you go to Amazon and if you go to their um, MP3 store, you can find these collections of classical works for like 99 cents for 14 hours of music. Now, these may not be the greatest artists in the world, but it's a wonderful uh, asset for people who aren't familiar with certain catalogs. You can hear an awful lot of really wonderful music for almost no money. 
A lot of that stuff is actually quite good artist, but things that have been exploited so many times on record and then CD that it's just gravy, whatever they make, by selling it for a buck. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think one thing that the iTunes store really needs to do is be aggressive in terms of pricing and get rid of this $0.99, cent, $9.99 model. Now, we know it's going up to like twelve ninety nine for some albums. You go to Amazon and they have hundreds of albums for, what is it, $3, $5 or £3 where I am. Um, Apple just won't do that. They, the, Apple seems to want to set itself up as the upscale music store compared to Amazon that's the sort of Walmart of music. Um, but I think they're making a big mistake. Think of how many albums and artists you would discover if you buy an album for th- three or four bucks compared to, you know, $10 or more for an album. Is it is it the fact, I mean, that 99 cent price point was kind of what iTunes was, was built on, right? I mean, the dollar a song idea. Uh, it seemed like a lot of, at the time anyways, that was a big fight with the music industry. You think the music industry is at a point where they're willing to say, oh, you, you guys have proved your worth, you know, do do it whatever you want, and we just, we're happy to get paid at the end of the day? Well, the, the difference, I think, is that Amazon is happy to lose money on stuff. They will sell you uh, a track, you know, give you a free track or sell you an album for $5 that they're then paying more than that for. And so the labels are still getting paid for it. You're getting a better deal, so you'll buy it from Amazon. Amazon will take the hit because Amazon is trying to get customers. They want to sell you a Kindle. They want to sell you other stuff. They want to sign you up for Amazon Prime. And Apple is not in the business of, you know, the lost leader. Apple's not in the business of saying, we'll take a hit on this to try to get, you know, to get you in here. We're not going to give you some free software to get you to buy this hardware or or, or this or that. So I think it's just the different mentality there. And I don't think that the labels are suffering from what Amazon is doing is that Amazon is basically saying, we're going to take the hit here and Apple's just not going to do that. Well, also initially when Apple started this pricing, they said, well, we don't want to confuse people. So at the very beginning, it's like 99 cents for a track, 10 bucks for an album. That's it. Done. Uh, when variable pricing came in, because Apple needed to make some trades to uh, it wanted to get rid of DRM and the labels wanted variable pricing. So they said, okay, fine, we'll do that. Uh, it became more confusing. And now Apple can't really make that argument. If you look at album prices, you find them all over the map. And um, song prices still are like usually at the three levels. But when they started introducing the buck 29 tracks, they said, no, no, but we're going to have some for like 79 or 69 or something. I rarely see those cheap tracks anywhere. So um, I don't think I've yeah, ever seen Apple them. Can- I searched I, for them once. Yeah, I, you have to. I've seen for a couple. They they often end up being uh, subpar. You know, sort of recordings on compilation albums and the like that are often like older pre remastered editions of songs. So you're not really doing yourself any favor by saving thirty cents. Yeah, I, I'm looking on the iTunes Store music section now. There are a few albums at seven ninety nine. So Daft Punk, you can get catalog albums for seven ninety nine. But if I'm looking on on Amazon at the same time there's 100 albums for $5 each there's other albums for $3 there's uh, hundreds of free tracks I think the free tracks Amazon take a, doesn't take a hit on I think that's the labels and the artists that agree to distribute them um, but why is why is Creedence Clearwater's 20 Greatest Hits three ninety nine on Amazon and probably twelve ninety nine on the iTunes store it's Apple is just losing because more and more people are there's no difference in the quality of the files, basically. So if it's a question of price, people are going to shop at Amazon. 
it is it is a big challenge for them going forward. And I, and I know we uh, I was very amused, John, to see that you pulled up, I think, from one of our old issues. I believe it was it was for the actual feature that we ran when the iTunes Music Store debuted. Uh, a list of things that that we wanted to see there. How did we how did we do over the last decade? Uh, yeah, that was so. That was a feature that we did. That actually I wrote in the July two thousand three issue of MacWorld, and in which I reviewed iTunes four that launched along with the uh, iTunes Music Store. Uh, we had twelve things we want in the iTunes Music Store, and most of them are there. A wider selection. Uh, just added section, user reviews, um, but full liner notes for purchased albums, that's still a case-by-case basis. Um, parental controls, get, gifting music, that's there. We actually did fairly well. And what was uh, one of my favorites on was number 10. We wrote the ability to order a CD instead of electronic files. Which so at, really forward looking there at the time, yeah that that was that was a little bit uh, looking looking backwards there, especially because you could burn them yourself. But uh, well, it's all and, coming around soon. You'll be able to order vinyl, right? Just, yeah. If Neil Young has his way, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll all be vinyl. No one will be able to listen to it because we won't have turntables. But uh, you know, we actually did. Uh, you know, out of the twelve, I would say probably ten of those have come to pass over the last decade, and then. Uh, Dan, you you helped put together uh, an article recently where we we re we redid this list, didn't we? Yeah, we did, um, and we we had some. A lot of our stuff tended to be focused on non music stuff because, again, I, I think we all agree that for the most part, barring some some complaints that we have with you know iTunes Match and stuff like that, the music side of the business seems pretty mature at this point. I mean, again, digital music is something we've all been buying now for a decade, so a lot of the the suggestions we had rotated around video apps, which we we barely even touched upon in this podcast. Uh, you know, the App Store obviously being a huge part of the iTunes store and its success over the last five years or so. Um, but we did talk about liner notes. There's one that's, that's still around 10 years later. We brought that up that, you know, you can go get an iTunes LP. Um, and those often come with a PDF digital booklet type thing. But, um, most of the, personally, I find most of those to be unfortunately kind of terrible. Anyways, they were the one I have for, I think the Django Unchained soundtrack is really low quality for some reason. Um, but yeah, why, why not have lyrics and liner notes and credits and stuff like that available for all albums if you want it. Um, and some things that I know we thought were steps backwards. I know Dan Frakes was wrote that he really missed the ability to open the iTunes store in a separate window uh, from in the iTunes application. So because it always now it just takes over whatever window you're in. So you you have to kind of bounce around. If you click on a link somewhere, it, it takes over whatever you were doing before in the iTunes window. So I think Kirk uh, would agree with you on that one. Yeah, I get tons of emails um, for the iTunes guy column about people who are disappointed about that. Um, it was always practical to have a second window for that or a second window when you're making a playlist. Um, but we're not going to get into why iTunes 11 is not a good thing. Um, that would take another <laughs> few hours. That's a whole other podcast. One, one thing I'd really like to see, and this may sound archaic, is the ability to um, burn videos to DVD or Blu-ray. Yeah, I, I think there's probably some people that would that would like that ability, especially if you're going someplace that you don't have... 
that you don't have access to a network connection, for example, if you're going away for a weekend, oh, I want to bring this movie. Um, it is a little weird to buy a movie and have it, you know, locked to a physical media. So there, there are definitely people I think who would appreciate that. Well, that's, I, I the, think, yeah, that's the area where DRM still exists on the iTunes store. Music got rid of it. But TV shows, movies, books, apps, they're all linked to an account. And you you, st- you can't do with those files what you could do with music. It's not as simple, you know, as just burning a, a disc because that's a fairly simple process, burning a CD of music as it is to actually transcode video and create a menu structure or whatever you would do. I mean, it, it's a more complicated procedure, but th- I, I agree that there should be some kind of options there. So as we cast our, our eyes back across the last 10 years of iTunes, um, uh, our, our managing editor, Phil Michaels, wrote a piece, uh, iTunes Music Downloads That We Regret. And I know, uh, Chris, that you you contributed briefly to this one. And it's certainly, I think you've probably bought a lot of tracks over the years. And you found one in particular, I think, that you really, really, would you want your 99 cents back? Uh, well, you know, I did it on purpose. So um, I, I'm willing to take the hit for that. I, I bought uh, Steve Miller's The Joker, which... I think is maybe one of the worst songs ever written. Man, I kind of like that song. Now I feel guilty. Oh, uh, no, it's all right. I mean, people have guilty <laughs> pleasures. Um, it's not as bad as BTO's You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet, which I think really is the very, very, very worst song ever written. You in tweeted that the other day. I had it as an earworm all day. No, I know. I just, I hate that song. I so hate that song. Uh, but I, the Joker's number two in my list of songs that I really hate. But um, it's become kind of a joke around my family that when there, when things get a little tense around here, um, we torture each other by playing uh, Steve Miller's The Joker. And um, so I bought it. And uh, and sure enough, uh, you know, I loaded the thing so I could get it in through um, my Sonos system. And sure enough, just something came up. And I, maybe my daughter was cranky or something. And I just cranked the thing up and and everybody just screamed, you know, like, oh, no, not the Joker. So uh, we use it for kind of um, tension relief, <laughs> although I suffer every time I put it on. Well, that's worth ninety nine cents right there. Oh, it's totally worth it. I mean, I, you know, God bless <laughs> you. Got you. Your money's Steve worth. Miller. Oh, I did, I did. I, so thank you, Steve Miller, for for writing that awful song. John, any any iTunes purchases you in particular wish you could turn in for for some cash? Sell at a garage sale of your iTunes store purchases, if only that were possible. Oh, there have been so many purchases uh, that I can't even think about it, but. My, like Kirk, my iTunes library is way, way over the 25,000 tracks uh, limit there for the iTunes match, so I can barely remember what's in my library these days. Well, I think anything by the Grateful Dead, right? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> or you, fish. Or fish. Anything. You, you, yeah, got, you got a couple people who are coming to visit. <laughs> I, I can actually think of two albums. Um, one was the very first album I bought on the iTunes store. Because when it launched, there wasn't a lot of stuff, and I needed to download something just to see how it worked. Um, so I bought Peter Frampton's Frampton Comes Alive. Admirable. No yeah. laughter? I uh, can't say I'm it, familiar with it, though, so I will. Oh, come on! <laughs> I, my music selection is incredibly strange. By, and by yeah. the way, the reason that Dan doesn't remember that much about the he wasn't born or launching is that he <laughs> was, he's only 10 now. Yeah. <laughs> No, so anyway, Frampton's comes alive because I do have a good memory, well, a foggy memory of seeing Peter Frampton before he sort of became really huge at 
um, St. John's University in Queens, New York. Um, and that was cool. But I listened to the album as like, okay, this was when I was a teenager. And the other one I really wish I could sell back is by one of my all-time favorite artists. It's the Christmas album that Bob Dylan did. I don't know if anyone has actually sat through that entire album, but it's painful. Not a was this during his Christian phase? No, this was about five or six years ago. Oh, okay. Uh, recent Bob Dylan is what you're saying. During yeah. his mumbling phase. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, hey, his last few albums have been really good, but this Christmas album, it just sounds like a satire. Well, I, I, uh, I threw out my contribution in, the, in Phil's article was uh, a Counting Crows song from the movie Shrek 2. Uh, and I pointed out that it had the word accidentally in the title. And someone else pointed out on Twitter that it may have been a free download of the week when it came out. So I guess I can't even take credit for having purchased it. It's possible. But I, w- I, I did look back. You can actually go to your iTunes account and look back over your purchase history and go all... I went all the way back to the beginning. And I think I, I will blame the fact that, although I'm not 10, at the time that the iTunes store opened, I was, in fact, exactly 23. Um, and so there were some definitely some regrettable purchases on there from, from bands that were uh, popular at the time. I think I saw some Matchbox 20 and some... Uh, uh, I, I hesitate to even admit this, but I think I may have bought a track by Avril Lavigne. I don't even know why. Wow. I'm, I blacked out. My son used to download all the freebies, and I know there was one by her because I, I found yeah, it I think in my I got library a once. I may have also bought a track on top of it. I'm just going to claim that I was, uh, I don't know, I blacked out and just purchased something blindly. Maybe I accidentally clicked. Yeah, we're going to go with that story. Accidentally clicked on the buy button. Accidentally oh. entered my password. <laughs> I clicked on the, are you sure you want to buy this? Are you really sure you want to buy this, Dan? So what I'm saying is I think the iTunes store going forward needs better protection against buying bad music. Okay, That's I'm, I'm just going to solicit our listeners. If, if somebody out there who has some extra cash would be so kind as to gift Dan Morin a copy of Frampton Comes Alive. Uh, because I believe that, you know, these are supposed to be issued at birth along with Abbey Road. And uh, I, I think Kirk would like to give me his. I mean, that, but I can't give it to you. It's, well, it's, there's it's a, yet another complaint. Uh, something else that, that, that Apple will have to work on revising in the next 10 years. Well, I'm sure there are yeah, many a, other a things. A way to give things to, well, maybe not to sell them, but at least to give them away. To sort of transfer your ownership rights from your account to someone else's account would be a good idea. Well, I will put that on our list of things for Apple to do in the next 10 years. And if some of you are around, maybe we'll, we'll reconvene 10 years from now to figure out what's gone right and wrong since then. What did you say, Sonny? <laughs> yeah, well, all, well, none of us will be able to hear music. I haven't listened to music in years. Um, but right now, I'd like to, to thank my guests for this week, uh, Chris Breen. Thank you, Dan. John Seth. Happy to be here. And Kirk McElhern. Thanks, Dan. And I'm Senior Editor Dan Morin. And thank you all for joining us on this week's edition of the Macworld Podcast. We'll see you next time. 